Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 142, Heartberries. Today we discuss the short and powerful memoir Heartberries from author Therese Marie Myatt. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi. Hey. How's it going? It's fantastic. Everything is good. The world is... I I feel like finally things are starting to even out. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Why do I detect a little bit of sarcasm? You know what, guys? Can I just say something briefly? please. That your education at the University of Southern California is not worth your parents Mm. going to prison. I am I am so deeply obsessed right now with the uh, school admissions scandal where yeah. people are paying half a million dollars to get their their Instagram influencers into USC. It's all I can do. I'm not reading anything. I'm just following that. It's pretty amazing. Like I feel like this is the story our country yeah. needs right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously, because you know it's like I feel like for years everybody's been talking about the legacy and the inequality and you know all the all the problems with the college admission situation and class divisions in general. But this, you know, when you have famous actors getting screwed and like the the details of photoshopping faces oh into other God. people's bodies, it becomes so palpable and real, and, and you know it just narrativizes. The problem that right. we've all seen and been talking about for really decades, but especially within the last 10 years. And uh, I feel like now it's finally really being talked about. And it's just so obvious and it's so egregious and there's no way around it. I'm just glad the Justice Department actually did this. Like it's, it's, and, and this is the guy who got caught. There's one, this is one dude. Right. Like there's yeah. 10 there's of him still of out there right, right. now, at least, yes. right? Like, well, so. And you know, the, the, the fucked up thing, of course, is that in actual athletics, so not, not pretending that your daughter is the coxswain <laughs> on the Harvard Westlake crew team or whatever, um, but in actual college athletics where they're recruiting these high school kids, this sort of stuff happens all the time. Like shoe companies and, you know, agent runners, they're they're seeing some promising 17-year-old kid and they know that he's going to go to college for one year and then go to the NBA and they're going to get this guy to sign a contract with them. They're going to give this kid and his family money to get him to go to Duke or UNC or wherever it is. And it's just sort of looked askance. Yeah. But... <laughs> but when you're just an Instagram influencer, it has are a been bit one of the most fun, <laughs> extremely depressing crises in <laughs> the American moment. My favorite of all the details was there was like a piece of a transcript where one of the dads was like, "Listen, my younger daughter's smart." She's going to figure this out, not like my older daughter. And I was like, "Oh man!" Oh god, I know. Oh. <laughs> It's, it's brutal. So brutal. You know what's crazy too for you know every every like in terms of like within the Hollywood community it couldn't have happened to nicer people or nicer people yeah. could not have done this. Like right. Fel- like Felicity and these like she's like known for being the nicest, most down to earth, most liberal. Like these are supposedly really great people. I've never met them, but you know like that's what it's it just goes to show how much the mania drew people to really criminal behavior right. like drew good kind-hearted supposedly great people to awful 
awful behavior and it's the competitiveness and like the way this system is set up it's just yeah. we're all doomed to, to lose from it like right. there's no way this is beneficial i mean you've said it before todd you've called college a, a pyramid scheme it is it, it is <laughs> it so is it's just unavoidable i'm just well, so glad i already went to college I, like, so i i just love reading the wiretaps because i love to see the the actual dialogue of people when they're in the midst of a criminal operation that they're trying to delude themselves that they're not in. So there's this, this one wiretap where it's this guy who's this, you know, a partner in this huge international law firm. And he keeps just saying like, like this is basically legal, (laughs) right? Like, like he just keeps trying to convince himself as he's talking about spending $400,000 to get someone else to take a test test for his son or whatever it was. But then he has this great, I think it's the same guy. His son's, you know, they're they're pretending that his son is a a kicker to get him through uh, some school with with an athletic scholarship or whatever. And uh, he's like, well, maybe he will, like, you know, get into kicking. You know, maybe, like, this is just what he needs to become an athlete. And the other guy's like, well, maybe. And like, you just sort of see the the wheels turning in like mental gymnastics. They yeah. twisted. It's like, not. well, right. he might he might very well get into kicking. He has very strong legs. And I'm like, you people, what is wrong with you? And you couldn't find dumber villains in an Elmore Leonard novel. Like these people are just so brazen, which is why there has to be like. 25 more of these scams going yeah. on around the country. I mean, photoshopping onto stock photos, that's like unbelievable. Oh, and like they're the schemes for which, you know, we don't want the kids to figure it out. And of course, some kids had to know or suspect, but I don't know. These kids sound really dumb. Right. Uh, but like, there's another good one that was like, they were like, okay, he got in on this track scholarship and just like tell the kid to go to a different orientation. Just tell him to go to the wrong orientation. And the kid, like, wanders in and, like, can't answer any questions about himself. And I'm like, oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, you're not you're not really, like, uniquely savvy at 18 years old to pull off a, a vast, widespread conspiracy <laughs> defrauding an American university. Like, these are smart people. The, so the day after all of this happened, I, I had to go meet with my dean at, at UC Riverside, where I work. And I was like, can you imagine, like, the process by which this could happen? And they're like, no, this is absurd. And you can understand it at a private school. It's hard to see it at a public school. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when I accept someone into the MFA program, it's my decision. You know, I I read, there's a committee, and then I, I get to make the final decision. I hit a button that accepts this person. And then 25 different people are notified of that person's acceptance, and they're all looking at the file. They're all making sure stuff is in compliance. They're all making sure the records are correct. And then it's not final until all those people have essentially signed off on it. And that's happening. You know, UCR takes in, you know, whatever, 5,000 students a year or something. That's happening for every single one of those students. But at a private school, it's like, you know, someone named Beth Ann just says, yeah, you're in. Give me a million dollars. And they're in. I just or can't like believe the, that these people can't think for themselves enough to recognize that, like, yes, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, these places, they're like, they are right now the pinnacle, right? Like, they are, right. but, you know, go to community college. 
Yeah. And in two years, you'll probably have a better idea of what you want to study, first of right. all. And then be able to transfer wherever that, get straight A's in community right. college, and your resume will be so much better. And then pick where you want to go to school. Because, right. you know, the truth is, like, those schools might really suck for you. Like, you might end up in, you know, a, a situation where it's not right. And mm-hmm. you're better off going to that tiny little school. And, where, you know, there's so many mm-hmm. colleges. There are so many good schools out there. There's so many great teachers the entire world over to obsess over what is already, you know, the number one schools in, in the in the world. It's just to get caught up in this groupthink and this I competitive, uh, you know, capitalist cycle of like oh we just got to do the same thing everybody else does and it's horrible do you guys know anybody who it's it's like even by the time you're 25 cares where you went to school i mean no of course there's that whole nobody that matters (laughs) but like i think about this a lot like my community that I really live in and interact with every day is everything from people who didn't go to college at all to people who went to Yale and they're still interacting, working together, doing their thing. And it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, everybody's got to remember it's only a couple of years. Yeah. Like no one cares that I went to Pierce college for a year and then transferred to Cal state Northridge where I graduated by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and now no you one run cares. an entire academic program. And now I run a and university that's the real scam, people. No, <laughs> no, nobody cares. Um, but, but there's always those people. I, I, I contend that if you went to Yale or Stanford, typically you find out from that person within about five minutes. Well, when I was at Yale, dot, 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 Yale, for God's sake, hang myself. Yeah. <laughs> There, there was a guy that was in publishing, uh, and we would always say, "Okay, count to see when he mentioned Stanford." Oh no! And it would be within ten minutes every time. You'd be like, "All right, here's your five dollars." <laughs> like, well, you know, when I was at Stanford, that's when I first found a boil that had to be lanced. Like, it would be whatever it was that you were talking about. He'd drop Stanford in. <laughs> oh, the best French fry I ever had was in Palo Alto when I was at Stanford. Like, oh, God. <laughs> He also probably rode crew. Well, um, in a completely different vein, yeah. we have the book that we Let's read this week. Trans- <laughs> yeah. Good transition. <laughs> yeah. Between so what matters and what doesn't. So in 2018, a little book called Heartberries began to get a lot of attention. Um, it's written by Therese Marie Myatt, and it's a memoir but not a very traditional one. Uh, Myatt is a Native American. She grew up on the Seabird Island First Nations Reservation in Canada, Uh, but her book begins in her adult life, specifically at a a moment when she decides to check herself into a mental health facility while going through a a breakup. And interestingly, the book is written uh, mostly in second person, or all in second person, directed at the man that she is breaking up with, Uh, She has one son from a previous marriage under her care, and we learn that she has another estranged son whose custody was awarded to her ex-husband by the courts. And thus we enter Mayat's story at this very tumultuous time in her life. And um, uh, what do you guys think? (laughs) It's it's not really second person, actually. Epistolary. It takes the form... Yeah, yeah, it's an epistolary. That's that's good. Good call. Um, so sometimes it's in first person and sometimes it's it's addressing a you and that you is various people at different points in the book. Um, I I was 
absolutely crushed by this book. <laughs> absolutely crushed by this it. This book is... Cried like a child who had all of his candy and toys and parents torn from him. I was thinking about this in... As I always do now, I read this all in one day. Um, and... Well, it's very short. It's also, it's only 150 it pages is, or something. We should say, like, the form, I would be curious to hear what you guys think is the form because it's generally all over the place. It's not following, like, any kind of linear structure. Occasionally things, like, are held around a theme for a minute, but otherwise it's pretty freeform, pretty organic. Um, mm. But I was just like, this book is pure pain. It is, like, a high dosage... Mm -hmm injection of pain <laughs> and like it can't be any longer by the end i was like i i've ha i can't process this and i mean process is uh, maybe an interesting word we should talk about because i'm not sure that she's process she's like sort of processing it on the paper but it feels like extremely raw it almost feels i don't mean this to sound mm -hmm. as negative it does it feels close to like a draft or a journal without having that like cutesy journal feeling and that it feels like she just wrote it this morning and that it's not heavily <laughs> edited in terms of like i'm gonna turn my pain into some kind of like story or structure it's just like here's right. this cloud of different things that have happened to me in my life or different experiences or different things i'm like meditating on um and that makes it the pain like there's no relief there's no relief to it. And even like the last couple lines, I was like, this is so beautiful. I don't completely know what they mean, but I feel horrible. Um, we can go back to that. Well, like. and one thing I'm sort of curious about, and I think I know, I think it's just because I looked up like her age and stuff, is the distance between now and the events of the book. And so I think I think it's been maybe... 10 years or something between the two. I'm not entirely sure because she's in graduate school uh, for a large portion of it. And now she's a professor and all these other things. So there's, you know, there's obviously some, some time in between, but because there is no, well, okay. So there's no actual sense of real time. So it is, um, it's almost like freeform poetry in that way. Yeah, well, let me, there's this passage on, on page 67 that, that really struck me as a sort of like uh, as a discussion of, of the project of this book itself. Mm -hmm. She says, the truth of this story is a detailed thing when I'd prefer it be a symbol or a poem, fewer words and more striking images to imbue all our things. I had to fill these pages with the story of our new family because the merging was so complicated, even I was confounded. I had to write full sentences and the exposition lent itself to the dialogue and there can't be ambiguity in the details of this story. It's, you know, she's basically like figuring out the form as from, from inside out. You right. Know what I mean, she's writing this book from like, what is the... What is the feeling I had? What is the the dialogue we had? What is the what is the experience that I was going through? And uh, and then let me write from that outward. Um, mm -hmm. And and eventually there will be a structure here. And I think that is so profound. And it works like it yeah. amazingly works. And it's mercilessly short. <laughs> like if yeah. this had been, you know, any longer, it would have been too much for me. But like you were saying, Todd, the, the emotion is just overwhelming. And, and when you can read it basically in one sitting or a couple of days, it is 
a really beautiful experience. Well, and we should say that the things that are happening in the story, there is, there's abuse, uh, there's mental illness, um, there's, there's a, an abduction, there's a murder, um, or attempted murder, there's profound illness and addiction. Sexual abuse. Um, uh, sexual children, abuse. Her children so being taken the away. The author has gone, children being taken away. The author has gone through, and then sort of profoundly um, fucked up personal relationships with people that you are romantically involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, so the author is going through all of these things, and the way that she has written it, in fact, sort of reminds me of what it's like to have a manic mm-hmm. episode where mm-hmm. like you're looking for the connections for all of these things and trying to tie them each together to make sense of whatever that moment might be. Yeah. And so you're going like, oh, this is my mother's fault. This is my boyfriend's fault. This is the addiction. This is the drugs. This is this. This is that. And it's just sort of like a kaleidoscopic effect of trauma. And, and you know, the thing about like PTSD, which this is also about. Last night, um, so there's this thing that I do here in the desert called Coachella Valley Storytellers, where people from the community come and they do sort of like a moth-like live storytelling event. Um, And it's a partnership that I'm involved with with the local newspaper. And people from the community come in and then uh, myself and my uh, colleague Maggie Downs sort of help them with their stories. And this woman who's going to do her story uh, this week, in fact, was talking about PTSD. And she was saying the thing about PTSD is that people with it are so good about telling their stories um, because they can tell it without the affectation of emotion because it's still happening to them. And Mm -hmm. so that sometimes comes off as feeling like, oh, this person isn't engaged with the trauma that they're in. But in fact, it's that they've disassociated so far from the trauma that they're in. This book seems to be the opposite of that. She has PTSD, but she's constantly living in the pain of the actual trauma itself. Does that make Mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the, the telling of the story in this weird sort of disjointed way is like being in that experience over and over again. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever read a book like that. Mm. Well, because it shouldn't work. You're right. Right. I mean, this is like, I mean, from a writing teacher's perspective, this would, this would be the, like, you would never want somebody to, to approach writing like this, no. you know, because it's, sh- it's so often would fail. It should fail. Right. Mm-hmm. This is, it is her, uh, her strength as a writer and her intelligence that makes this work against the odds. I mean, because as a project, as a way to sort of, it, it is very sort of like, um, you know, I mean, she, she talks about starting to write while she's checked into the The health facility and, you know, that's the worst kind of creative writing. Like that's like, (laughs) that's like, okay. You know, when somebody says that they're doing that kind of writing, you're like, great. That's like for mental health, you know, matters that should be very helpful and that could be constructive, but it's probably not going to result in, in a good book or something that you would share with the world or that anybody else would um, be able to read and get much out of. Uh, So in a weird way, this book, her talent, uh, it, it works despite uh, its structure because as, as structurally or you know the way it sort of began as a project it really shouldn't work I think mm-hmm. part of what makes it successful I mean there there are obvious things she could have done and I think the book would have still been a commercial success that 
would have given it structure, some kind of metaphor meaning, like, um, I mean, ones that come to mind are like structuring around her three sons or like right, really right. sticking with this letter form um, in a way that's more thorough. <laughs> she even abandons that. Um, <laughs> but right. the one that I was wondering if it was going to like go down this path and then she like gives the greatest defense of why she doesn't do this is like a Native American myth. Like she starts to like mm-hmm. weave in some of that mm-hmm. language and the tone that I think a lot of us know from other incredible Native American writers, but she tells this story that is so great where her father says like eagles are mother, like they stand for mother. And right. she says or she reflects, I guess, in her writing. I wrote this down. Making Indian women inhuman is a problem for me. We're, we've become too symbolic. And it, then she goes on to say how it like, mm. takes the humanity out of women um, to constantly be like raising them on this symbolic platform. So she doesn't do that. Like there's, She's good because what she's... The way that she's writing, there's almost like no metaphor or very, there's images, but there aren't, you know, she's not spinning this like tale. It's just like, this is what's happening. Another great um, phrase I wrote down was, I forget the context of this. Maybe you guys remember. Um, She's talking to some people and they start like asking her questions that are going to lead to her talking about her trauma. And she writes... I felt breathless, like every question was a step up a stairway. I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's the most perfect description of what it feels like. You know you're getting into a conversation where you're going to go into this trauma. Well, and she talks so much about um, about time and grief being related to each other. I'm, I'm looking for this, um, this passage. Uh, gosh, where is this? Um, but that it's, you know, that it's this sort of continuous process of going back over everything that has gone wrong. Oh, here we go. Um, this is on page, oh, it's on page four. So it's very early on. Um, uh, I can see grandmother's face in front of those children. Her hands felt like rose petals and her eyes were soft and round like buttons. She liked carnations and canned milk. She transcended resilience and actualized what Indians weren't taught to know. We are unmovable. Time seems measured by grief and anticipatory grief. I don't think she I don't think she even measured time. Man. It's so it's so powerful. Um and you, I mean that's page 4. Like <laughs> <laughs> that that would be the end. I'd just be like, well, I'm not going to come up with a sentence better than that. I'm well, going to go ahead and the, stop. These sentences are incredible. This whole book is just full of them. You know, I mean, Sherman Alexi, I don't know if you guys read the introduction, but Sherman Alexi talks about that in the introduction, and it's very true. It's like you could just pull sentences from this this book, and, and they're all so striking and, and powerful and, you know, poetic, I guess, is, mm-hmm. the, is the best, the, the, the simplest word. Um well, and she talks about um, there's a she runs into a woman named Adrian late in the book, and she says her name is Adrian, like uh, the great poet Adrian that I love, and so she's talking about Adrian Rich there, um, and specifically like you know Adrian Rich's 
diving into the wreck, which this is a, a, a direct descendant of. You know, if, if Therese uh, was writing poetry, she'd be writing poetry in the Adrian Rich realm yeah. or the Margaret Atwood. Like, she's sort of in that strange area of late or early 1970s Adrian Rich and Margaret Atwood when they were, you know, the talking about, you know, first do not be a victim. You know, this <laughs> that's that mantra that they both had. Um, and she's in that, you know, she's really, uh, she's a descendant of that, at least with, with her writing. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, do you know who I also kept thinking of, strangely enough, is uh, Dennis Johnson, um, Jesus's son. Mm-hmm. There's something to the density of the language and this unstructured narrative that you're sort of building between the chapters and between the lines about this person's life. Um, and, and, you know, and in, in, in a similar way, there's, there's drugs and alcohol involved and, and a lot of mental illness, uh, that's sort of, uh, keeping you from having absolute clarity on like what exactly is happening and how mm-hmm. people are treated. But then that lack of the, even though there's a lack of sort of overall like narrative understanding, there is real clarity in the moments and in the way that relationships are defined by like the things we say to each other in like one conversation or one night or, you know, and, and that I kept thinking of Dennis Johnson's Jesus son, um, which is kind of maybe a strange comparison, but it reminded me a lot of that. I kept thinking about Natalie Diaz's uh, when my brother was an Aztec, mm-hmm. uh, a book we read a couple years ago. And I'm such, I'm a huge Natalie Diaz fan to the, to the point where I was at this writer's conference on faculty at this writer's conference and she was on faculty there and I was such a fan I couldn't speak to her. <laughs> wow. I was Todd like, rendered silent. That's wow. an Thank you, Natalie. Yeah, I, I really wanted to I, I really wanted to go up and talk get to her, her on but then show. I was worried like if I go up and talk to her, she's gonna think I'm a, a fucking idiot and I'm gonna say something stupid and I should just let her be Natalie Diaz and I can just be me over here and never the twain shall meet <laughs> because I don't want to fuck it up because I would yeah. you guys know I would yeah. I'd fuck you, it up you'd try yeah, to be thanks, funny thanks Julia <laughs> I would try to be funny and it, would, it wouldn't yeah. work and I'd fuck it up um, but you, can we talk just for a second about how odd it is that this book though became a national bestseller like I'm I'm I, well, I mean I know how it did right so she ended up getting on like the Daily Show with Trevor Noah um, and doing a bunch of television for it. But this is a this is a small press. Well, not small press, but it's not a major press book. We have the same publisher, Counterpoint Press, and they're a, you know a large publisher, but they don't have necessarily all of the acumen of a of Random House to get all their authors onto onto the Daily Show with every with every book that comes, and so this sort of thing happened right and now her book is this huge bestseller and people that would never ever read a memoir like this are reading this memoir and i i'm just trying to imagine like do they are their heads being blown by it it's a really like it's the opposite of eat pray love right (laughs) right Right. it's not it's not like a tidy wrapped up in a bow journey from right here to there where i learned a lot and came out perfect on the other side but there's something, there is something very cathartic about this book. Um, you know, I, I, I think anybody who's been through any sort of 
trauma or family mm-hmm. conflict, uh, you know, you relate and you're, you just, you just, you experience it so personally. And she's so, uh, open and honest in a way that is, uh, you know, frankly disturbing at times, mm-hmm. you know, where you're like, Oh, I don't know if I want to go that deep into your life. Like, what is it like sitting in that waiting room when you have to check yourself into a mental health facility? Or what is it like on day seven in that same mental, you know, yeah. like, it's rough. And, and, and that's, and yet, you know, it's so beautifully written and so evocative that you're, you're there. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just, yeah, I think, like I said, if it was any longer, you know, mm-hmm. if this was double this length, it wouldn't have been a bestseller no. because I think people would feel too oppressed by just the experience. But as it is, it's it's like this perfect, um, you know, just emotional cathartic experience that you get to undergo just by reading it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and she, she, she distilled it perfectly. It's so dense. Everything is just distilled to its, its purest essence. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... I'm not surprised that this is popular at all. I think this is the power of representation. Like people are trying now, like Trevor Noah or his producers to reach out and feature different kinds of stories. And that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And this story has, you know, story isn't even the right word. This work (laughs) This life. life <laughs> this it life. touches so many things. I mean, honestly, you guys, like, I think I've read other memoirs about sexual abuse and subjects like that, but just the image that's towards the beginning of her, like, sobbing in her lingerie and, like, going emotionally oh, nuts no. with her boyfriend, that is so, <laughs> that is so brave. Like, I, I can't even, like, describe what it felt like to read that of like somebody is like opening the door to their worst fight with their boyfriend in a way that mm-hmm. I've never seen. Mm-hmm. And she's presenting herself like as out of control, but she's saying like, I'm still human. I'm not crazy, but I'm crazy. Like this exploration of that. And I was just like, Whoa, this, <laughs> this is really brave. Um, the other thing that I think, that we haven't brought up yet. And I know obviously I'm like more into this topic lately since I had a kid, but like the way that she talks about the feelings that she's experiencing in relation to her, she has three children, one who was taken away from her, one who she gets to keep, even though it was the same father in the same circumstance, (laughs) just really weird. And then a third child that she has with the person she's addressing the letters to. Um, but like the way she talks about like, like she can't bond with them or she doesn't care about them, but yet it's like so painful to think about them or be apart from them. It is, that is really brave. And I like can't overstate the amount of women who like feel those feelings or struggle with those things. Especially like, can you imagine having mental health issues and then having a fucking baby? Now think about all the people who have mental health (laughs) issues. Because you have to go off your meds too. Right. So like even if you've balanced out your your you know your life in certain ways with medication, you can't you have to go off of that to have a kid. Yeah. It's crazy. So like oh my God. all that, I mean yeah. that's that's an audience, you guys. Like there are corners mm-hmm. of the internet or coffee places where women are whispering to each other, like, I hate my baby or Constantly. I don't know how to right. deal with this situation. And 
It doesn't surprise me at all. Oh my that, god, that, when, that would catch fire. When when my son was born and we had to go to all of our doctor visits, it was insane to me how every questionnaire my oh, yeah. wife filled out began with how are you feeling? How do you feel about your child? Have you been feeling blue lately? You know, it's like right. everything was about postpartum depression because it's so um prevalent. Like it's it's prevalent. It's everywhere. It's just, you know, it's it's a real thing. The hormonal shifts that your body goes through and then the expectations that our culture puts on women to just be the or mothers to just be these perfect you know, beings with no desires or problems or, or needs of their own to just be this like sort of helpful vessel for their children is it, it's and then it was great to read and- this as so that's happening but it's not like i want to emphasize to our listeners like that is not like a major part of the book the kids are just kind of there mm-hmm. mention when relevant um sometimes they get these little scenes oh my god she has this like heartbreaking scene i i might not even be able to talk about it where like after her son is taken away she like forgets that he isn't there and like feels for him in the bed and like mm-hmm. goes nuts that's that's when I lost it. That's the point when reading the book where I didn't even realize I was crying and I was crying. I was like, there's a yeah. wetness on my face. Um, oh, my God. That was but so she's powerful. Also, here's, uh, this is to make you cry double, Todd. She's also kind of, she has this like ghost in the book of her mother and like this complicated mm. mother who yeah. was neglectful, but also very loving in certain ways. And then the book ends with a final very short letter to her mother. And I was just like, I'm done. Like I can't even like process this, you know, river between these kids and this woman and this mother. I, I just can't even. And then, yeah, one more like relationship that, uh, you know, we should mention is she remembers this sexual abuse from her father, but Mm -hmm. most of the writing about her father is this like, guilt-ridden feeling of love towards him of like all these positive memories and uh, (laughs) she writes i wish i could have known him as a child in his newness it's like god that was the point also at which i was like holy shit i mean to to um i guess to release the the anger towards your abuser because you recognize at some point they were a baby essentially Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty powerful piece to give yourself, though I don't think she's at peace with it. it. I mean, because she's not. You know, there's that constant, there's that constant battle, and there's that there's that line when she's pregnant, um, where she says, "He took the best parts of my blood." That's how she refers to the child that's growing inside of her. He took the best parts of my blood. I became anemic, and you can draw that parallel then to. Her father, who was at one time that baby growing in someone else's belly. Oh, my God. The, the other thing that I, I felt when reading this is that so much of me like wants to just apologize to her for the, for the terrible things men have done to her mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. Um, it's it, it really is a sort of a sickening feeling I get sometimes when I read these books or when I talk to someone who's been the victim of traumatic abuse. And I just think, God, what the fuck is wrong with, with people? You know what's... With men. With men. You know what, what else yeah. is great about this, though? And so, okay, so she's almost exactly my age. I, I also read her Wikipedia page. And she's, she's two <laughs> weeks older than me. That's how close in age we're at. 
and I, I watched her interview on the daily show and she's like doing this incredible writing, but there's things that are sneaking in that are very like current. So this, <laughs> I love the line, like you feed your dog more kindly than you feed me. That's yes. men. Yes. The next line is that's men. And I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's yeah. the peer language that women are speaking right, right. now. And it's really mm. brave. And like, Ryder, your intro, like you said, it's written to the man she's breaking up with. And she is breaking up with him in the moment she's writing that letter. But she's married to that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's her husband. No, no, still. Now, I, yeah. I didn't want to yeah. give away oh, spoilers. I was, I'm all over there. Starting where we begin. But yeah. But I also, it took me a long time to realize that that's yeah. her husband. Like, oh, oh, that's her, that's, this guy but is like, her yeah. husband. That's oh. so You brave. have to piece the narrative of her life together from yeah. the details, you know, it's and really it's clever. And it's so, but all this is to say, Todd, like, she doesn't want your fucking apology. She's, she's fucking no. brave. She's like, I'm going to publish a best-selling <laughs> yeah. memoir about all this shit my own husband <laughs> I know. Because oh. uh, he is not coming off very well in here um with his real name and i'm i'm just like this yeah. is it his real name yeah i didn't look <laughs> oh. oh i looked <laughs> she's no, so she great goes, she goes so far at, by the end she goes so far as to essentially say that that well here i'll read the passage pain expanded my heart Pain brought me to you, and our children have blood memories of sorrow and your joy, too. They inherited their share to cultivate their own children, whose humanity and gentleness will remind them of you and me. Had I, been, had I not been born and cultivated in this history, I wonder how dim and dumb my life would be. Mm-hmm. I feel fortunate with this education and all these horrors and you. I mean, that is a crazy... It is. To, I mean, after, you know, you've been reading, this is on page 120, so you're like... You've been through these experiences with her. You're like, how could she possibly take this in stride and say, well, it's worth it because my life is, I've, I've come to a place that is so, um, that is empowering now. And that's where she ends up, which is right. crazy. It's, yeah, like you say, she's so brave. Uh, it's a very, very uh, profound movement. I mean, brave, I don't think brave is the right word. I mean, like she is a survivor, yeah. you know, like yeah. w- she should be dead. You know, the average person probably would have, when they walked into traffic, found that car. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, man. It's just so powerful. What else can we have to say about this wonderful book? Yeah, do we um, have any criticisms of this book? Because I don't think we've said a single negative word. Um, no, I think she also accurately depicts the low-residency MFA experience. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Um, for those of you looking for low-residency MFA. Um, you know, the the one thing that was was the weird the weirdest thing for me is um that she kills ladybugs and then you find out why she kills ladybugs mm-hmm. but it's like the other day so in southern california right now there's this these swarms of butterflies everywhere because we're in the midst of the super bloom after this deluge of rain and the other day i was driving and i killed like 500 beautiful butterflies at one time and my car was just covered in dead (laughs) butterflies and i was like i killed beauty and then (laughs) then i read that she's killing ladybugs and for me like in in my mind ladybugs are like the the nicest weird bug on the planet the cutest bug i let a ladybug walk on me 
she has her reasons, which we won't reveal. But like, that's the kind of. But book even this is. yeah, I mean, again, like that's just brave. Like to not apologize mm-hmm. or try to make herself more like cute about it, or just plain leave it out to be more likable. It's like she's mm-hmm. doing crazy shit here, you guys. <laughs> it seems yeah. it feels basic, yeah. you know that oh woman should be able to say like yeah i i kill stuff that's cute um but that's right. not normal and but she's got yeah. her reasons um what else i mean there's just so much i mean i i read this um straight through which probably wasn't good for mm-hmm. my mental health um because i was you know <laughs> sobbing and you know, laughing. It's oh, that's the thing. There's weird deadpan humor in this book. Oh, a lot of there's some funny shit in this book, <laughs> and so it's it. You're right, writer. It shouldn't work, and it does. Yeah. It really there's there's all these weird things that shouldn't work. I wonder what um what she's gonna do next. You know, I I wonder. Oh, awesome fiction. She's gonna kick you think, acid fiction. You think she's gonna be doing yeah. novels? Yeah. I think she, I think this was, you know, this, I, I, cause she, I think she went into her MFA program to do fiction, mm-hmm. uh, but then started writing this and this is what came out. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and clearly this was an exercising of, of some mm-hmm. kind, you know, I mean, she, she talks about it coming out of the moment, you know, where she walked into a Starbucks and had a memory come back to her about her father. Um, and I, you know, and then sort of writing, I don't know. I, I feel like this book has freed her, hopefully, because she's such a remarkable writer and she has such good insight into, um, well, she just has a way of being able to describe characters and behaviors and her empathy is clearly just there. So mm-hmm. I really hope that she she writes some great fiction after this. Like, you know, that's what I can't wait for. I can't wait for her fiction. I think she is so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, can, I, can I tell you the last point at which I cried in this book? Sure. And this was like, it's a freeing cry. Uh, this is on page, uh, what page is this? Um, page 112. Uh, Every day I negotiate the minutes of my life, remembering that I can't remember enough. I spend hours convincing myself that no child is ruined, and the one inside me is worth remembering fondly. My mother's looming spirit guides me some days, telling me that nothing is too ugly for this world. I am not too ugly for this world. Oh, boy. <laughs> Why don't we just leave it there, and I'll, I'll record oh, an outro man. right now. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly at, on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.